Good to see you all. It's weird to see you with the lighting up here. It's strange, isn't it? Um, I was really thankful last week when Kathy uh, asked us to go old school Christian church and uh, turn to your neighbor and say hi. If you feel so led, I think now would be a great time to turn to your neighbor and say hi. Good to see you. I see you. Hmm. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world who maybe grew up differently than us, maybe using a different language or a different lens to see the world. Uh, will often uh, greet one another uh, in their own form, in their own way, in their own language, but by saying that they acknowledge and see the divine in them. And I want to tell you, little Christs, whether you know it or not, I see Christ in you. And that's freaking jacking me up. (laughs) I just had this talk earlier this morning that uh, I know intellectually that that you are all made in the image of God. And I know intellectually that the Christ uh, can reside in you. And I'm beginning to know. I'm beginning to know. And it's so beautiful to see you all. We're done with Mark. (laughs) I should probably do my intro. Hi, I'm Wayne Randolph. I'm one of a handful of teachers here at Liminal Church of Ventura. Uh, We do not have a main person, a lead person. We have a group of people. Um, We hope that that gives you a little bit of spice and variety, Uh, maybe something more to wrestle with uh, as a result. Um, To those of you online, hi, welcome, glad you're here. Um, If you're new here, just let you know, first of all, stoked you're here. Glad you showed up. Um, we just ended a over-year-long series on the book of Mark. Um, and so today we are actually starting a brand new series. It won't be super long, um, but I am really thankful for this one. Uh, and so this is where I get to give my shout-out to Catherine. And thank you, Catherine, for uh, this fun series. And let me tell you why I think it's fun. Um, I think Catherine or maybe Ginny might have mentioned last week when the panel of us was up here that uh, as a result of having multiple people on a teaching team, that also means that we have different styles, approaches by which we do our research as well as uh, the way by which we we share what we know with y'all. And uh, evidently, um, Brian White and I uh, are in a category where um, we don't write everything down. Uh, We kind of just fly off the cuff and... um, Thank you for this series, because this is a fly-off-the-cuff series. I'm really thankful. We are going to be starting a series on good questions from the Bible. Um, Not good questions generated by us, necessarily, but good questions that are generated, actually, in the text. Um, I feel like I have to at least say this. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but um, being a high school Bible teacher for a a period of time in my life, bless you, 
Uh, I feel like I could definitely do a series or at least a coffee table book on stupid questions. Um, and let me just be, since I was already blunt with that, let me, let me tell you something that I might have told your students uh, or your kids if they were ever in my class, but I don't think they were. But um, you might have heard it from an adult that there are no, there's no such thing as a bad question, and I will tell you there absolutely is. There are stupid questions, and stupid questions get stupid answers. And there are some stupid questions that my students have asked, uh, but I should probably start with there's been stupid questions that I have asked, right, along the way. But this particular series, we're going to look at questions that we find actually in the story, in the text. And the freedom here, again, thank you, Catherine. The freedom is... uh, each of the questions that one of your teachers on the teaching team, each of the questions that we got, we get free reign. So if I want to go theological with you, if I want to go into some, maybe some of the psychology and mental health space, I don't know, you guys know I kind of like this Enneagram thing a little bit that might show up today. Um, but I'm excited, so uh, thanks for showing up. Before we get to our question, awesome. Um, Actually, no, the question is going to come up first. Might as well just throw it up. Who told you you were naked? I love this. I'm so thankful that this was on the list of, of uh, example questions that we could pick from. This so resonates, uh, not necessarily the naked part, but uh, this so resonates with what I feel like um, I have been wrestling with, conversing about, uh, and discussing with God in my times. Um, Before we can get to that space, um, I want to bring a little practice over from our Contemplative Sundays. And so here is a quick plug. Uh, The last Sunday of the month, we have a Contemplative service where we slow down. Um, We're not always listening to get understanding right in the moment, but to sit and marinate. Um, There's all kinds of forms of uh, contemplation that we can do together. Um, But today, um, I brought a little cantillation, uh, which is a form of chant. Uh, This is nothing new. This is how people in our family, in our tradition, have um, interacted with prayer and with some of the text. And so I'd like to practice a chant with you guys For those of you who just cringed when I said we were going to do a little bit of something from the contemplative service because you intentionally don't come on those Sundays, I'm really sorry. And I, and, and I don't, I mean, it's a little tongue in cheek, but like, it's cool that you intentionally don't come on those Sundays because if it's not for you, it's not for you. So there's no shame in any of that. Like if it's not for you, don't show up. But I did want to bring over a little something that we participated in and it's stretching for sure. But I'd love it. Um, I'm going to chant and and going to invite you to join in with me. Uh, And this is a form of centering ourselves. It's a way of calibrating our thoughts, our ideas, our vibrations, if you will. And so I invite you to chant along. still and know that I am God. 
still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be. Be still and as close as our breath. You breathe life. You constantly breathe life into us. You are our source. You are our God. We are your beloved, and we rest in that knowledge. Thank you, friends. It's got a nice way of calming us, huh? Just bringing us into that space. So the question I have today that I get to explore in any way that I want. <laughs> Who told you you were naked? So this question comes to us from Genesis. And before we get into that, um, something that I would hope that you all know, but maybe some of you don't, about a third of our text, about a third of the Bible is in the literary style of poetry. The, third of the Bible is a particular genre of poetry. And it's not poetry like maybe you and I are familiar with. It is a form of ancient poetry, but is poetry nonetheless. One of the reasons I bring that up, or actually the reason I bring that up, is for a lot of us, we have been brought up potentially in a tradition that um, really only offered one angle. Um, I, I like to use the diamond a lot. So um, for many of us, we grew up with one facet of the diamond that told us there was a way to interpret scripture uh, in particular, and I'm seeing a couple of nods because I've been having conversations with some of you this week in the last couple of weeks, but in particular, this idea of solo scriptura um, or only scripture or maybe even the concept of inerrancy, 
um, really leads to a potentially a limited view of reading the text. Why do I bring that up? I want to just make it clear for y'all that my approach to the text is not from the position of inerrancy, and it's not from the position of sola scriptura. Um, in fact, I think biblical poetry, like all poetry, invites us to explore and look around and be curious and derive meaning. If you want to talk more about that later, I would love to chat with you. What I'm not saying is that everything is just loosey-goosey and everything's up for interpretation. You all get to go do what you want. That's another talk. But for poetry, the diamond is really beautiful. I have a quote up there from Dr. Tim Mackey. If you're not familiar with uh, him, he is one part of the Bible Project, a, a group online who creates videos, animated videos, taking sem seminary-level content and making it um, palatable for us morons. Um, he is a seminary professor. He trains pastors to, to lead. He is a, a specialist in um, ancient uh, Hebrew as well. And I just love this quote, just to remind you that poetry isn't something you master and then move on. Biblical poems are a bottomless well. They're packed with a surplus of meaning for those who are willing to slow down and ponder them. And I especially love that quote after doing a little bit of contemplation with you guys, just that idea of slow, slowing down. So let's go ahead and get into some poetry. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I like the imagery there. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? There are so many different avenues, sermons that we could go from here. Parents in the room, come on, we all know this scenario where we told our kids not to do something, right? I mean, they're, they're, I didn't even think about this. There's like freaking viral videos all over YouTube with like the kid with like donut all over his face, right? Like, did you eat the donut? No. <laughs> no, I promise, right? And there's like donut everywhere. And like, we, we know this scenario, right? And so I'm not going to go into talking about whether or not God knows, you know, or, or they are actually hiding from them. But what I do want to look at is these conclusions that both Adam and, and Eve came to, representations of all of life and humanity, and the conclusions they came to. So the angle is this. Prior to defining good and evil for themselves, there was receptivity, there was connection, there was intimacy, there was union, there was shalom. 
Shalom's another one of those words, especially if you're new, that uh, it's important for you to know that you're going to hear a lot about shalom. And we're even uh, planning on a series coming up here shortly as well. For a quick uh, overview of shalom, uh, in the garden, we see a system. Like Think like sociology, like there's different systems by which we do life together in society. And you see a system of shalom, which is a flourishing and abundant relationship with God, with each other, with the earth, and with ourselves. So let me go back to the statement again. Prior to humanity seizing the opportunity to define good and evil for themselves, we were on the same page. We were in that system. We were working under those definitions. There was receptivity. Do you all know what I mean when I say receptivity? Open, able to receive. We're going to build on that in a second. There was connection. There was intimacy. There was union. There was shalom. And I want to emphasize this for so many of us. There was the original blessing. Again, for so many of us, we might have start our Christian narrative at Genesis 3, starting with the problem, the original sin, if you will, this, the fall, which, which then it necessitates a solution. And I think Jesus is much more than just a solution or an afterthought. And so what the emphasis here is on the original blessing. You all with me on that concept? After their eyes are opened, after they seize the opportunity to, find, to define good and evil for themselves, there was a disconnect. The relationship became constricted. What immediately follows? Fear and shame. And it disrupts the union, resulting in God asking, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Where would you get such a stupid thought? As parents, we know we're not allowed to say that, are we? Dang it. <laughs> I guess we do, don't we? So here's my first question for us as we approach this, as we're looking at this poem. What falsehoods have you come to believe on your journey? They were naked. No one's arguing that part. The conclusions they came to, the definition of naked changed when they were, quote-unquote, enlightened, when their eyes were able to see. We collect falsehoods. We collect false identities. We collect positive false identities as well. It's so easy when we start talking about this stuff just to think about the negative talk, right? That, that inner critic talk that we have. But what about the positive identities? Is that truly who we are? So if you can, for a moment, pause and reflect, even with gas-blowing machines outside. <laughs> Fill in that question. Who told you that you are What's the falsehood you believe? 
Who told you you were dumb? Who told you you were ugly? Who told you you weren't enough? Who told you you were too much? Who told you you were great? Who told you you're worthless? Who told you you are the summation of your experiences? Where does that come from? As most of you know, uh, I am an Enneagram practitioner. I am so thankful for the wisdom that is revealed um, when using the tool of the Enneagram. It has been so helpful in my own personal journey in learning to befriend my own shadow learning to introduce that shadow to my maker and learning to work and live from a place of open receptivity. Not always good at it, but I sure do value it. So much so that I gave up teaching to pursue Enneagram work so that I can do it on an individual basis or in groups with people. So today's uh, lesson will for sure include some Enneagram wisdom. And so it kind of starts with this here. When we are in a constricted state, we are unable to be receptive to the flow of ruach. Ruach is the Hebrew word for spirit. It is the word for breath. It is the word for vitality or life force. But when we are constricted, when we are closed off, when I'm listening to those falsehoods, I am not in a state of receptivity and the, the, the domino effect that happens from being constricted is that we forget our true identity. We lose our center. We begin to identify with our passionate reactions to things like shame, fear, panic, anxiousness, anger, worry, self-loathing, etc., etc. We begin to over-identify with those things, the way that we react. We begin to use those labels for other people. Oh, that's just an angry person. I, I, I work uh, in the school district, and I more often than not find myself in special ed classrooms, and I'm shocked at how often I'll have a teacher or a paraeducator tell me, oh, that kid is a, and then just fill in one of those things, oh, that kid's a biter. No, that kid bites. <laughs> That's not their identity. Y'all see what I'm saying? We begin to over-identify with the, our, these passions, these reactions that we have with ourselves. We also do it. It's what our mind does. It makes it really easy to interact with you if I can just, again, make you the summation of maybe one action that you do repetitively. And again, the result of that is that we lose our center. We lose our identity of belovedness. By lose our identity of belovedness, I mean we forget. When we are in a constricted state, we are cut off from source. Again, just to dial, hit that home, a constricted state happens, and we're going to look at some of these things, but it's when we start entertaining those thoughts. It's when that person gets into your personal bubber, bubber? Into your personal <laughs> bubble? I don't know what that other thing is. That's weird. 
on the freeway, right? When that person like cuts you off and they just get just a few, two feet. Oh, I'm in that reaction. I'm constricted. I'm instantly closed off. Oh, and all those feelings and anger. And I'm the judge that's going to show you you're wrong. All those feelings come in, right? That's when I say constricted, friends. This is what I'm talking about. Brothers and sisters, this is a place that most of us find ourselves in throughout the day. It is hard. I'm such an idealist. I love this idea of living an unrestricted, receptive life. Holy crud, it's hard. It's hard when I'm standing in front of you and there's these noises outside, (laughs) right? It's hard when I think about uh, whatever it may be that's waiting for me. It's hard when I think it's Women's World Cup right now. You guys know that, by the way? It's so hard to remain present. Like, all I can think about is, like, the next match or something to go see. Like, it's, it's all these things are, 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 are taking us out of a state of receptivity. This is why I'm always talking about this. And when we are constricted, when we are cut off from source, the result is that we are relegated to our own egoic and limited ways of seeing God, the world, each other, and ourselves. Shalom is disrupted. Does that make sense? When my ego is front and center, it's like a filter that comes up. This is why I like the Enneagram. There's a filter that comes up. It's like my head's up displayed. My autopilot comes up. And now all of a sudden that filter's up, and now I'm interacting with you, God, the environment, myself, only through that filter. When that filter is up, those of you that study psychology or are in that field, I know we've got some cool professionals here. We're talking about the ego, right? We're talking about the ego. And when the ego is operating, our passions are triggered. Here's another plug for the Enneagram. Man, it's not just another game to figure out, ooh, what am I or what kind of type am I? And then we can all play games. It's a tool so that you can unlock the jail cell that you've created for yourself. The ego-contained jail cell that wants nothing to do other than remain. (laughs) And when our ego is operating, our passions are triggered. What are our passions? They are the disordered, self-referential emotions which in turn divide our heart. I would encourage you to pursue the tool of the Enneagram. If you're wanting to do deep work, if you're wanting to, to go in and, uh, man, there's all kinds of language for it, do some shadow work, go dragon hunting, uh, crucifying the ego, whatever it may be, Jesus says you have to die to yourself daily. This is the best tool that I have found that helps me in that process and helps others. The Enneagram can reveal to you your ego's chosen method to navigate the world and the passion that's associated with your type. My passion for my type and my filter is gluttony because my filter believes that I have to outrun pain and suffering because I don't want to experience that and feel it. And it served its place when I was younger. I needed that. But now I've stunted my growth because there's so much to learn in pain and suffering. Does that make sense? We are the cause of our own suffering, and if you can observe correctly your ego, the patterns it's chosen, and the passions associated with, guess what? If we can observe it, we can tinker. 
We can reverse engineer. We can correct it. And so I've learned, by way of the Enneagram, what goes on in my mind, what goes on in my mind, I'm sorry, my body, what goes on in my heart, when those things are starting to go online. I know that I don't want to associate myself with that space any longer. It no longer serves its purpose. It doesn't help me in my relationship with my wife. Does that make sense? Man, if you've taken any of the Enneagram classes or discussions or stuff we've done here, if you've talked with me for more than 10 minutes, you've probably heard this little uh, behavioral mantra that I, I like to throw out all the time. But where my attention goes, my energy and behavior follows. This is so important, friends. I know so many of you have already learned this. Usually we learn it the hard way and results in gray hairs and nicknames and scars. But I know so many of you are learning this, right? Where my attention goes, my energy and behavior follows. So here's the reverse engineering part. If I can pay attention to where my energy is, where my attention is, I can switch it up. You're not doomed. Let me throw you a quick quote, and then I'll teach you practically, uh, give you a little tool on how to do that throughout your day. Um, one of my teachers, probably my most favorite teacher, Helen Palmer, um, says that when our type patterns are online, right, when my filter is up, the reminder there is I'm only seeing one-ninth of reality. One-ninth, just very practically, the Enneagram is a nine-sided uh, shape. And so when I am operating from that space, when I'm believing the falsehoods in my mind, when I'm constricted, when I'm no longer receptive to God, I'm only seeing that which my filter prioritizes and doesn't. I don't have a handle on reality. When I'm in that state, it's the perfect time to have a, a disagreement with my wife. Nope. <laughs> it's a perfect time to uh, turn on the news. It's a perfect time to get behind the wheel of a car. I'm not even going like all dramatic, like it's gonna like you're gonna go crash. I'm not saying anything like that. Just if you're only seeing one ninth of reality and your focus, if my focus is on uh, pleasure and I get in the car and all I can think about is like heading over to uh, Topa Topa later to watch the soccer game with friends, then I might be a little bit distracted. Y'all with me? So where my attention goes, my energy behavior follows. When I'm in that space, my attention, energy, and behavior is all going to my type pattern and I am not seeing reality the way that it is. Conversely, if I'm in that space and my wife and I are doing this, guess what? Her filter's up. By the way, we don't do this like actual fight. That's, it's 2023. We don't do that. <laughs> but when my filter's up and her filter's up, and I know my heart loves her, and I'm pretty sure her heart loves me, but it's just those filters online, we're not in, interacting with each other's essence. We're not any interacting with each other from our true identity. We're only in a state of protecting ourselves. And my filter is different than her filters, and hers prioritizes things that mine don't, which is really strange to my filter. And it makes my filter really pissed. <laughs> and of course, I need to tell her. <laughs> so how can we recognize when we're in that state 
How can I tell when that filter is, is present? First of all, it takes a lot of hard work, but it's worth it. And it all starts with being able to observe it. If it doesn't start with awareness, if you're not aware that it's happening, then ignorance is bliss, isn't it? Then you're going to keep on wondering, why does everybody do things the way that you wouldn't do? You're going to keep on going through the world wondering, how do they do this? How do they do that? Why are they? I wouldn't do that. Why? Because your filter is front and center. And, friends, you are over-identifying with that filter. I know I do. So how can I recognize when I've lost my center, when I've lost receptivity with God? So here's the first one. The Enneagram breaks uh, things down into a triad. Uh, interestingly enough, the triads are all neurocenters that we're finding out today, right? So you have the head, the heart, and the gut, all of which have brains of their own and neurotransmitters. So to start in our mind, what thoughts am I swept up in? On the Enneagram, my filter is in the head type. I, this resonates with me. What thoughts am I swept up in? Showering. Man, when I'm in the shower, I, I just have conversations. And sometimes it's like, oh man, I'm having these like, thoughts and things are happening. But sometimes I notice, and this is one of the triggers for me, sometimes I notice, what, why am I just stuck on that one conversation yesterday? Why do I just keep sitting there? Why do I keep coming back to it? Why didn't that person respond the way I wanted? <laughs> How could I have done it, right? And so what thoughts am I swept up in? Swept up, like I, I, I can't get out. It's like a riptide. Do these thoughts actually align with reality? This is a little cognitive behavioral therapy right there, right? Thoughts versus reality. Is, is this thought that I'm having, is it actually like... It feels like there's a threat in my body, but it's just Ginny, right? It's just Ginny in front of me. Like, there clearly must be something else. Although you told me earlier today you got a little cranky recently, so maybe I don't want to see that. <laughs> Am I stuck or perseverating, right? This is, this is like spiraling on a single thought or scenario, Maybe, again, it's a past scenario from the day before. Maybe it's an anxious thought. Maybe you're a, a but-what-if person. Oh, I'm going to have this talk tomorrow. Oh, my gosh, but what if, but what if, but what if? And a little bit of that's okay. Y'all feel me on that. Like, a little bit of that's okay, but I'm talking about stuck, where now it's in your body, and now your attention's there, and so your energy and behavior is going to change as a result. How else can I recognize when I've lost my center, when I've lost receptivity? This was a big one for me. I know some of you I've talked to, this is a big one for you as well. What's going on in my body? So many of us exist up here and we think that all of our experiences in life is up here. Oh my goodness, there's so much else going on, right? What's going on in my body? Am I experiencing tension, right? Do you feel, uh, I like to call it the squeeze, Mine happens here. I've talked with some of you in our Enneagram classes. Some of you talk about it being up here, maybe in your jaw, and your neck. You guys can actually feel that squeeze, that constriction, right? The body is letting you know. Are you shaking? Do you notice a rise in temperature? 
Are you able to point to it? Are you able to identify it? I feel heat right here. I feel tension right here. You guys, this is so important, and I'll tell you why. If I can identify it as here, now I'm not over-identifying with it. Does this make sense? It's, not a, it's, it's just, no, no, there's heat there. Guess what? Maybe I don't feel heat down there. Maybe my feet, I don't feel that tension. That may not seem like a big deal to you guys, but if you can, if you can find a space in your body where you're not experiencing those things, then that tells you you're not those things. Does that make sense? That's a resource. So you can find that space in your body because we have a tendency, I have a tendency to over-identify with my experience, with my reactions. Maybe you have a desire to move or run. You can feel that. I can remember when I first, my, my very first Enneagram course that I took, and I was up on stage. The way that we, the way that we teach is funky. I love it. But I was up on stage in front of, of all, all my peers, and they were asking some very pointed questions. They were getting close to the shadow, and my body was starting to get nervous, and my leg was starting to shake. And one of my, my teachers, who is a, a trauma therapist specializing in EMDR, immediately stops and says, hey, Wayne, she's just pointing out my leg, do you want to run? I was like, yeah, I want to run. Are you kidding me? I won't tell you all the words I use, but yeah, <laughs> heck yeah, I want to run. And she said, so do it. Literally, I'm sitting in a class like, like th this size right here, and I'm sitting on a panel with other people who have the same filter as mine that tries to outrun things. And she says, just go do it. For me, that was like a breakthrough. Like, I'm allowed to? So I hope for some of you, I hope for some of you that's a similar thing. Like, wait, I can listen to that? It all gives you data. So how do I regain my center? How do I get back to my center once I've lost it? I'm using that phrase interchangeably with with constricted and, and unrestricted receptivity, right? So once I've lost my center, how do I get it back? Once I've been constricted, how do I, how do I find it again? How do I find that space? And this is where I get to remind you that receptivity is as close as your breath. And this is actually profound, and yet it seems so cheap seems too easy, but your breath is the gift. In the very last stanza of Psalm 150, it concludes with these words, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. I want to throw an angle on that for y'all. You ready for that? Reminding you that where our attention goes, our energy and behavior follows. So if my attention is on the person that wronged me, the energy in my body, I'm going to start to get a little shaky. This is just the way it shows up for me. I'm going to get a little shaky. I'm going to start to notice a little bit of shallow breath. And my mind is going to go as fast, holy crap. It's just going to go through all these different ideas, all these things, and I'm in it, right? So now my attention is on the wrongdoing. My energy and behavior is there. Now my behavior is going to be frantic. I'm either going to try to fix it right away, or I'm going to outrun. I'm, I'm leaving. Deuces to all of you. 
in which case I just perpetuate that cycle. But if I can place my attention on my breath, Ruach, spirit, breath, life. If I can place my attention on my breath, if this law holds true, then my energy and my behavior will follow that. And so if you can pay attention to what goes on in your body, especially when you are in a state, when you're in that state, if you can pay attention physically what's happening and location of where, and here's a beautiful gift for you. Therapists in the room, I'm sorry, because this will put, put you out of work for, for a lot of people. <laughs> if we can just teach you to breathe. <laughs> so I mentioned my squeezes here. And so if I place my hand there, I feel the felt sensation. I can feel the warmth. I can place my attention there. And I can start to breathe into that space. And what you'll notice, in three or four breaths, you might notice a sliver of space, a little bit of room. The constriction stopped a little bit. Maybe it's then that I take my hands and I go down to my, my belly because I want to go past that blockage. <laughs> and I place my attention below it. Now my energy and my attention is loosening up that space. There are all kinds of different tools that you can use in this um, arena, if you will, or when these things arise. But I just want to give you a quick 30-second one. because I think, I think most of us are willing to put up 30 seconds to maybe change our minds a little bit. And I'll give you a two-minute version as well. So, friends, if you could all sit up. Uh, not to say that you're not sitting up, but... Just allow, allow the, the, your air, your breath to flow through you. And in this idea of ruach, um, the breath, the spirit of God, uh, I'll remind you um, of something uh, Father Richard Rohr uh, passes on a lot um, during his talks. And it's that uh, Yahweh, the name of God, uh, seems to be one of the only words that we can say without moving our mouth. In fact, he goes on to say that it's designed to mimic the breath. And so on your inhale, God is as close as your breath. In the opening beautiful poem in, in Genesis, God breathes life, breathes life into Adam and Eve. He goes on to say, so the very first word that's on your tongue when you enter this world and the very last word that'll be on your tongue as you leave is the name of God. Again, think about that last stanza of the Psalm 150. Let everything that has breath 
praise God. Friends, when we are in a state of, of restriction or constriction, when we're in a state of, I know, tension between our fellow human beings, with God, with ourselves, after doing some work, paying attention and finding out how you respond in those situations, literally the first pause and answer is to work on finding your breath. So, um, even with the noise outside, I hope that we can do this. Um, in the same way that you joined along and chanted with me, those of you that participated, thank you. Um, can we sit for just a second in silence and practice breathing Yahweh? For some of you, I hope you recognize how quickly placing attention on our breath, connecting it to the divine, how quickly that can be a regulator. I also want to acknowledge that some of you are like, what the heck's going on? This is weird, and that's okay. Beyond that, here's what I would really, really, really encourage you all to work on as a tool throughout the day is the two-minute version. In the two-minute version, place your attention on your breath. I think the Yahweh breath prayer is a perfect way to do it. If you just want to place your attention on your breath and breathe, you don't need to have a word. That's fine. But once your attention's there and you've kind of calmed the amygdala down, because this is what we're talking about, right? We're, we're talking about relaxing the, the fight-flight freeze response, then you can start checking in with those other questions. What's going on in my body? Where am I feeling it? Can I breathe into that space? What kind of thoughts am I having in my mind? Right Now that you've, you've slowed down, you've breathed, you've, you've disengaged, if you will, what are the thoughts that I'm having? Do those thoughts line up with reality? Come back to the breath. I mean, come back to the breath. Right? Come back to the breath a couple times. Come out again. Where's my head at? Where's my body at? Am I noticing any of the tension releasing? Now, friends, um, trauma is a real deal. Right? This will never, this technique will never um, get rid of our need for, <laughs> for trauma, like therapists and, and people to help us navigate that stuff. And I also want to make sure that you hear that, that um, when you're in the midst of maybe some intense kind of trauma or traumatic experience in your body, sometimes this breath stuff is going to feel really foreign and not helpful at all. And so I don't want to hold anybody hostage by saying that this is the answer or the solution. What I do want you to hear is that this is a free and readily available way to regulate yourself, to come back into your body, to come back into a state of receptivity so that we can be in union with God so that I can interact with you from a place of a conduit 
as opposed to a place where my ego is driving it. Does that make sense? So that first question we started with, I'll just ask you again. What falsehoods have you come to believe on your journey? What falsehoods have you collected? Who told you that you are? Fill in the blank. And lastly, for a reminder and for encouragement, and if you don't believe this, man, come talk to me afterwards. Your core identity, your essence, at your core, you are beloved, and there is nothing you can do to get rid of that. There's nothing I can do to get rid of that. May you increase in your understanding of your belovedness. May you increase in your understanding that the person sitting next to you is just as beloved. The person on the freeway, the person on the news, the person on the end of your social media feed, the person on the end of your sites. <laughs> they are all beloved. They are all beloved. May we live from that space. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's it. Oh, you don't need to clap. <laughs>